0: (laughs) Good morning,
1: this is not on. Good morning.
0: Happy Hanukkah. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for December 4th. Welcome back from a a a two-week break from Grand Rounds. And I will remind you that we have Grand Rounds through December 18th this month. We have Grand Rounds featuring Dr. Donnelly next week. Craig Donnelly, Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics, an update on anxiety disorders in youth. And i like to share a little good news at the beginning of every Grand Rounds. And I have a nice opportunity um, in my new role to receive messages from lots of sources. I got a message, I've collected some messages, I received a recent message from a patient family says, Dear Dr. Loud, I'm writing to you to express my appreciation of the services provided several months ago by the Department of Pediatrics in general and Dr. Stephen Mott specifically. Dr. Mott methodically sifted through 15 years of documentation and completed the appropriate clinical exams before diagnosing my son. This is a a shortened version to protect the innocent. Thank you for having qualified experienced staff at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center like Dr. Mott who was capable of making a very complicated diagnosis locally. So thank you Steve and thank you everyone for all that you do on a daily basis. And we're back on track with our local faculty again after having some visiting speakers in November. Today Dr. Salcone is going to teach us about extra business. Dr. Salcone is a native of North Dakota, uh, South Dakota. (laughs) That's important, right? Not just the Dakotas, (laughs) out west, and was um, somehow was transported east after after, uh, undergrad at Regis University in Colorado to join us here at Geisel or Dartmouth Medical School for undergraduate degree. Stayed east down in Boston for residency. Uh, in ophthalmology at the Mass Eye and Ear, as well as fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital in pediatric ophthalmology and strabismus, but came right back in 2010 to join our section of uh, ophthalmology in the Department of Surgery, and we are very happy to have Aaron here to teach us this morning. Thanks, Aaron. Okay.
1: Hi there. Thank you very much for having me today. Um, I talk about strabismus all day long, every day, and I love it. So I'm hoping that it's not too <laughs> boring for you guys, but um, I, or that I can instill some sort of interest in it as well. Um, first of all, I just wanted to—I don't think she's here—but kind of introduce the woman I work with, um, Ms. Barbara Schneidloff. You may see or hear her name a lot, and um, she works very closely with me. She's an orthoptist, who a lot of people don't know what that is, but it's kind of a nurse practitioner of Eye motility problems, and so she specializes and is an expert in pediatric ophthalmology, um, non-surgical um, management and um, evaluation. So um, she sees patients independently, and so we kind of work as a team quite a bit. So the goals today are just to discuss why detecting strabismus is important, um, to explain risk factors for developing amblyopia, um, including um, three different kinds: strabismic, refractive, and occlusive. Um, List types of strabismus and their amblyogenic potential. And evaluate for esotropia and exotropia clinically um, because they're the most common forms of strabismus and utilize tips for successfully getting an eye exam, which I think is the most common reason um, people come um, from other eye providers is that a kid shows up at their practice and they are hands off and no way who's a, um, whereas I think they're actually more enjoyable and easier to examine than adults for many reasons. But,
0: uh,
1: but I probably don't need to convince you guys that. So a lot of it is terminology and it's its own language and anyone in my clinic can hear us throwing around terms and acronyms over and over and it's um, really h- hard to decipher what's going on. But especially when I'm talking to patients, families and talk about amblyopia, esotropia, exotropia, anisometropia, I get a lot of blank stares. So there's a lot of terms um, which I'm not gonna go sp- each individual one, but um, hopefully they make a little bit more sense by the end of our talk today. One term that I um, don't use and hope to distill anyone else from using is lazy eye um, because um, it has no meaning really. And it's not the eye's fault, it doesn't, it's not lazy, it's working very hard, I'm trying to see. Um, it's not that it doesn't take out the garbage or something. But it's, I um, get referrals in for lazy eye frequently, Our parents are adamant, they have a lazy eye. And I say, well what do you think, mean by that? It's lazy don't you know what lazy means? And I, well, some people think it means turning in, some turning out, some with decreased vision or amblyopia due to that, um or ptosis, the lid drooping. So um, I, I don't know what that means when they tell me it's lazy and I, it's nice to know, you know, in other terms what they mean by that. So a little bit about development of ocular alignment. Um, as we all know, um, ocular misalignment or strabismus is very common early in life, first couple of months. Um, The majority actually have exotropia, although it can be variable minute to minute, as you know, they're looking up close, their eyes cross, it wanders out. Um, And so anything before two to three months of age, unless it's constant, so if the eyes crossed in towards the nose and it's just stuck there, that's clearly not normal. But anything beyond that is um, a normal um, developmental um, period in the first two two to three months. But, infants only have a few ways to tell us that something is wrong with their vision and strabismus is one of those. So an eye crossing outside of that um, time period is a red flag that something's going on. And um, we'll go through all the different types of strabismus, um, but there are some that are um, it's an indicator of something more going on rather than just the idiopathic kind of strabismus that I see 95 plus percent of the time. Um, Nystagmus is another clue that there's something more going on regarding their vision um, and squinting in a baby um, or a a, um, toddler uh, can also indicate some vision problems. Um, So strabismus Mm -hmm. is something scary until proven otherwise in my mind even though it's a lot less common that it's due to something sinister. This is just a large macular scar due to congenital toxo, um, but the child looks like any other kid who's crossing. So the causes of strabismus are are many, and um, I'm actually not gonna get too much into the um, details of this, just suffice it to say that it can be due to a large brain tumor. That's always um, parents' first question, is it due to a brain tumor? Well, in some cases, it actually can be. If it's acquired later in life, if it's um, sudden onset associated with other other neurologic conditions, um, the eyes not moving as um, well, then um, certainly it could be due to a large tumor. And I actually need to remind myself that, because it is uncommon, and I see so much strabismus I actually um, wrote a case report when I was a medical student here about a six-year-old kid who presented with um, intermittent crossing and it was full motility and um, was passed off as just a very typical form of strabismus and then found this in the back of his brain um, two months later. So you um, think you have to think about those little red flags about its um, acquired nature and um, anything else going on. He had three-month history of kind of sinus problems and um, so that was a clue that he actually had a big sinus uh, mass. Um, Just refractive error or needing glasses can cause the eyes to cross or to wander. Um, And then the most common kind that we see is idiopathic. We don't fully understand why it happens. Um, It's not a muscle problem. So muscle weakness is actually not the problem with strabismus. It's just the way that the brain and the eyes are communicating with each other and trying to keep the world on the central part of the retina um, at all the the time is um, a complex system that can break down. So it's not that there's a lesion in the brain but it's somewhere in that communication that it happens. So even though it's not a muscle problem, that's what we do to treat it. Um, but it, underlying it, it's not that the muscles usually are sick, unless you have mice and or something else. So why do we care about strabismus? Um, and that's what I'm here to kind of convince you that it is very important. Um, loss of fusion and or stereopsis. So fusion um, is kind of having two images of the world that you can see at the same time. And um, it gives you a, three, a two-dimensional construct of the world um, without confusion of the brain not knowing which, uh, you know, that there's two images at the same time. It's just, Fusion means seeing out of both eyes, not ignoring one. Stereopsis is the next order of vision where you actually fuse that into a three-dimensional view and um, that can run a huge spectrum from just gross stereopsis um, where you really see um, just like the movies and stuff, you actually don't need that much stereopsis to see 3D movie um, to very fine levels that they actually test for, for ophthalmology residencies and a few other professions. Uh, But you also uh, need to demonstrate stereopsis to be say like a fighter pilot when you really don't actually need it because in the distance you're not using that stereopsis, you're using more monocular cues. Um, So amblyopia is the thing I think about and worry about the most with strabismus, very common, um, why some kids develop it and others don't, um, hard to say for sure but we'll talk a lot more about amblyopia in a moment. And then not insignificantly, is psychosocial implications. Um, I never used the word cosmetic, and again, I'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But I always ask them if this becoming a social concern, eye contact. Um, I had a patient in my clinic, because I see adults with strabismus as well. And so I had a 65-year-old man in my clinic recently, and kind of tough guy looking, and he's talking about the eye crossing for many years, and he thinks he sees double. And I kind of had the impression he was trying to give me like a symptom. And so I kind of validated the fact that, you know, Decreased eye contact is not an insignificant part, and he started to cry, and he's like, I've never been able to look somebody in the eye, and you know, never know where they're looking, and um, so it's important for all ages, and um, I'll kind of talk about some of the studies um, for kids in a moment. Um, critical period of visual development um, extends throughout young childhood. Um, recent studies have shown that even up until about the age of 14, sometimes there's brain plasticity that can improve vision, but true visual, the critical period is those first few months of life. That's why we care so much about that early, um, like occlusive type. You're always looking for a red reflex. If there's a cataract there early on, the brain doesn't have the potential to ever learn how to see. Even if you remove the cataract later, two or three, four months of age, um, if, if it doesn't get it in that first critical period, then um, it may never learn to see. Um, it requires a focused retinal image; um, otherwise, you get dense amblyopia. So what I always tell patients is that you need to see to learn how to see, and the brain is constantly using the clear image coming in to to kind of solidify those um, neural connections. Um, We look at um, early vision with smooth pursuit, how well they can um, track, and um, that's normal that um, it can be abnormal up until the same age because it's still in development. Um, And the OKN is the optokinetic um, nystagmus that we see with this kind of drum where you spin it around or if you're looking out of a train or a car, you know, you can feel your eyes doing that optokinetic nystagmus. And um, that signifies at least vision in the 2200 range. So um, it can be used sometimes for um, uh, functional vision loss um, that... You so say they can definitely see better than they're telling me, you use a, they can't hide their canhystagnus when it comes to the O.K. and drum. And but it's a great way to test kids and you can see their eyes um, flicking. So it's at least an indication that they have some early visual development. Um, Binocular visual development occurs um, in the same time period, Um, so even though their eyes are wandering, it is intermittent, so they have periods of um, binocular (laughs) input, and that's when they're making those hard connections, and that's why um, strabismus is common up until about age three to four months of age, because they don't have a a hardwired binocular system yet. Um, If they don't have them early on, then there's actually death of those cells um, um, that result in loss of uh, permanent stereopsis or fusion. Um, So you have to have a unified perception of two images. Like I said, you're seeing one thing out of one eye, one out of the other. And it um, comes together to give you either a fusion, two images um, on top of each other, or true stereopsis where you're looking at shadows and how that um, combines into a 3D image. Um, so, from in my standpoint, binocular vision is important for lots of different reasons, whether it's um, just your view of the world and having a three-dimensional view, um, job attainment in some cases, um, and for um, kids who have strabismus, it's an excellent um, way to help maintain their eyes straight. So, if you lose that stereopsis early on, then you may never have a great surgical outcome because there's no lock-in mechanism to keep their eyes straight. They tend to kind of swim and their alignment's um, a lot more tenuous. And um, we use many different ways to test um, binocularity and um, this is the one that we use. There's a fly which shows kind of great gross stereopsis. And um, those early kids, if you can get them put, put the glasses on is the key. Um, sometimes you don't need much of um you know, a response other than them kind of grabbing at the wings or kind of jumping and startling. And um, even, a, you know, 18-month-old can, you know, can sometimes get an idea that yes, there's stereopsis. And as soon as I can demonstrate that, it's very reassuring to me um, that we are, we're working towards a goal of maintaining that. If they never show love, um, binocularity, um, it's really hard to know if they have any potential, if their brain was ever really hardwired to see it in the first place. So what is amblyopia? Um, I get a lot of referrals for amblyopia um, when I think they mean strabismus and vice versa. Um, Amblyopia is the result of strabismus um, as well as other issues. And basically it's just decreased vision in an eye that's otherwise healthy and normal um, that is due to this abnormal visual experience early in life. So strabismus, the eye crossing in or wandering out, um, the brain kind of ignores or suppresses the image in that eye, which results in loss of those um, cells um, and can cause permanent loss of vision. Um, anisomotropia, which is a term for um, asymmetry in the glasses prescription. So you have like a, a plus three in one eye and a plus one in the other eye. The brain's going to have to choose which image to focus on. And so that's a reason for there to be suppression and amblyopia that's one of the more difficult ones to treat, partly because they present later, there's nothing to see, their eyes not crossing in, um, and so it's a lot harder to pick up um, kind of in a primary care situation, and um, so they tend to present later and are harder to treat. Um, You can have bilateral amblyopia, if they just have very high, unrecorrected refractive error, um, or bilateral cataracts, say, from a young age, Um, although bilateral cataracts um, early on is less problematic than unilateral cataract because it's that competition that really creates the, um, the really dense amblyopia. Um, Visual deprivation, so cataracts, um, lid drooping, ptosis, vitreous hemorrhage um, from um, non-accidental trauma. Um, It can cause more problems with their vision long term from amblyopia rather than any structural changes to the eye or the brain. Um, Early studies showed that, um, which are not very elegant i think and that they used had monkeys they sewed their lids shut um, and then euthanized them and looked at their brains and then they could see that there were if they did that there were only a few cells dedicated to the um, occluded eye and most of the cells um, dedicated to the other eye so they know there's an actual anatomic change within the brain and then more recently they've looked at studies looking at functional mris and um, the first line there d is um, with uh, out-amblyopia, the eye without amblyopia, so um, monocular testing, and then the line A is with the, the eye that's amblyopic. And then I don't know a lot about functional MRIs other than there's a lot of color in the first one, there's not very much in the second one, and, um, and that's um, just another indicator that those the a true neurologic, It's a cortical form of vision impairment in a structurally normal eye, essentially. Um, so Nationally and internationally, it's a very common cause of unilateral vision deficit both in childhood and in adulthood. It's more common than any other form um, of vision loss um, combined. Um, And here's a cataract again. The cataract is only part of the problem, removing it, and then amblyopia rehabilitation is the other part. So what do we do to treat the amblyopia component? Um, We try to eliminate the underlying problem. So if there's a cataract, you remove it. If they have ptosis, you correct it. Um, If there's strabismus, then you, you try to correct it as early as possible. Um, You correct any significant refractive error so that they give you the best chance of the brain to see clearly. Um, And then you force the use of the poor eye. And patching is one way and is the gold standard, has been around forever. And I think parents come thinking that I'm holding out on them, that there's a newer, sexier way to treat it. (laughs) And there really is not. um, There's a guy in Alaska who will actually suture a plastic one um, to the skin. And um, I tell parents that, not that I would do that, but um, just to kind of scare them and say that this is really, really important. And this is the only way we're going to force the brain to use the other eye. Um, Other options um, on the more extreme side is you can do Botox to the eyelid to induce ptosis um, so they can't use that eye. Um, Put sometimes occlusive contact lenses rarely I'll put on if they really can't keep the patch on. Um, But really it comes down to education and just getting them on your side and convincing them that this patch is there to help their vision. Has nothing to do with the strabismus and that's a very common misconception and I have to tell parents over and over the patching is for the vision and surgery under glasses are for the strabismus. So we're not trying to strengthen eye muscles or make them work better, we're trying to make the brain use that eye to see. If they present with dense amblyopia, so their vision's already in the 2200 range, it's very, very difficult, and I can appreciate that as a parent, that you're holding your kids' hands, you're sitting down with them, they're putting the patch on, and um, so I tell them that that that's normal, if they don't like it, don't just give up because, you know, it's too hard. Um, But this is their one shot to get better vision long term, and um, so it really needs to be one-on-one early on. And um, don't let the kid put it on themselves. Pirate patch with their peeking completely defeats the purpose of patching because um, now you're doing four hours with a pirate patch, and all it takes is that little tiny sliver of them looking through, and you know, it doesn't work at all. So the occlusive patches are key. Um, they, it should be worn with the corrective lenses in place. Um, another option is atropine penalization. Um, atropine is a dilating drop, a <laughs> paralyzes the ciliary body, you can no longer focus. So you can't see when your eyes are dilated. So we use it to our advantage by dilating the sound eye. And um, that way, especially with any mirror work, they are completely blurred on that eye. It only works in certain vision levels because if you have very dense amblyopia, the atropinized eye will still have better vision than the the really bad one. So up until about um, 2060, 2070 range, and it works better for certain types So kids who are hyperopic or farsighted versus nearsighted kids. Um, and um, there's obviously issues with, you know, they have to wear sunglasses, um eyes dilated, they have to tell everybody why my pupil is big. Um, but in some cases it's a lot easier than putting a patch on two, three, four hours a day, just putting one drop of atropine um, once or twice a week, because the drop works for one to two weeks, so that pupil stays big, um, which parents find out when they don't wash their hands, touch their own eye, and <laughs> now they're atropinized for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Um, so we talked a little bit about psychosocial implications. Um, there are numerous studies. I um, won't we'll go into details about each one, but um, numerous, numerous studies showing the importance um, of the psychosocial implications of strabismus, both in adults and in children. Um, specifically for children, it is associated associated with significantly worse um, general health-related quality of life measurements um, in preschool children. Um, and then negative social reactions. They looked at what age do they start to see this, and um, they find that it emerges right around age five or six. And they've looked at, they gave them dolls to play with that had strabismus and other ones that were normal. And um, I thought it was very sweet that the three and four year olds didn't care. And they said, oh, he looks normal, there's nothing. And then once around age five and three quarters, suddenly they were like, that one's mean and that one's bad. And um, So it's a a thing that they learn early on. And um, so a lot of parents come in with a four year old, you know, with a big exotropia. And their vision's actually stable and doing well. um, But they are appropriately concerned that when they start school, this is going to become an issue. And again, they've compared um, dolls um, with kids. They've looked at ones inviting them to a birthday party. You showed them pictures. Who would you invite to your birthday party? Um, uh, And it's pretty uniformly given negative description for this um, pictures with strabismus. Um, And then not only peers and kids, but elementary school teachers were tested in um, Scandinavia, and they gave 10 different um, characteristics, personal characteristics, and every single one they they rated lower just based on photos of a kid with strabismus versus not, including intelligence. Um, integrity, um, um, behavior, who do you expect to have more behavior issues, and the only difference in the photos was um, business. and these are, you know, adults dealing with little kids who have these issues and trying to instill their um, self-esteem and uh, everything else, so um, very, very important. So now it's clear that it's important, and um, the sooner the better because that critical period of visual development, um, so how do we diagnose it? Um, First you need to know who's at risk and um, as we all know, kids who have uh, retinopathy or prematurity or just for being premature is a risk factor. So that's why after I see the kids for ROP, I continue to screen them up until about the age of five. So until that period, it's hard to get a good vision um, assessment in the PCP office, they're not getting the school screenings. So until they're more verbal um, and are able to get a good exam, I recommend yearly exams for these kiddos. Um, obviously you see them you know, more frequently if there's any issues or um, high risk factors. Um, Smoking during pregnancy is a risk factor. Anisomotropia, remember that asymmetry in the glasses prescription. Um, Hyperopia, or just farsightedness, um, cause, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but it induces kind of convergence with the eyes coming together. Um, A family history, um, so um, it's not a slam dunk that they're gonna develop it, but it certainly increases their risk. So, if there's a child who has a strabismus, I usually recommend screening the younger kid um, about, you know, maybe early on, age one or so, if there's no concerns, and then maybe once more before they go to school. Um, Numerous neurologic disorders, hydrocephalus, um, cerebral palsy, um, name it, almost any neurologic disease um, is associated on some level with strabismus. Um, so it does tend to cluster in families. There's a large study going on in Boston right now, where they're trying to look at what is the genetic predisposition. And we just know that there's some chromosomes that are more likely to predispose to it. Um, but there are very few forms that are actually autosomal dominant, where it really just it happens every single um, um, generation. I have one um, set of triplets, identical triplets, and one has an accommodative form of strabismus, one has no strabismus, and another one has had surgery, and um, one has amblyopia, one doesn't. It's completely three. Completely different forms of strabismus in these three identical girls. Um, so again, consider referring all the younger siblings. And usually in our clinic, especially Barbara, we'll <coughs> take a peek at the younger sibling. So we, even if we don't do a full exam, um, or just, it's nice to get a vision on them early on and um, to kind of reassure the parents in us. Um, so there's many different types of business. Um The direction of the deviating eye, again, there's a lot of terminology. Esotropia or ET is crossing, XO, X going out. Um, hyper going up, hypo going down, um, and then things that you can't always see from the outside but in cyclotorsion, there's muscles that are dedicated just to the rotation of the eye, the oblique muscles, so in exocyclotorsion can occur as well. Um, clearly the most common is the esotropia and exotropia and what I deal with, um, but um, the vertical misalignments are com- um, not uncommon in kids uh, as well. So g- tropia versus phoria is a very common um, kind of confusion area as well. Tropia just means it's constant. Um, that it's always deviating. It can be intermittent and tropic, meaning that it's in and then straight, and it's in and it's straight. Versus, versus forias, where their eyes are straight if they have both eyes open. And until I cover one eye, it starts to break down. And probably half of us in this room can demonstrate some phoria if I was to kind of break down your fusion and go back and forth. Um, but um, so it's a, lo- a varying level of control. One little cover and the eye starts to cross in. That's still it's a poor control. Versus others, where you really have to patch them for an hour, put them out in the waiting room, and then you start to see something. So, um, lots of referrals for pseudo pseudo-esotropia or pseudo-strabismus, and that's because, as you probably know, that there's a wide nasal bridge, prominent epicanthal folds, a small interpupillary distance is also, gives that appearance, Um, it may be asymmetric, um, a little bit of a different orbital development, and so they can always say it's the left eye, it's always the left eye. That raises my suspicion that there might be real esotropia, but um, not completely, because really you can just bury that sclera, the white part of the eye very easily, and um, it really gives that appearance. Some kids walk in, I'm like, oh yeah, they're crossing. And we do our test back and forth, and no, they're actually not. Um, so to differentiate, um, we'll talk a little bit more about the testing mechanisms. But corneal light reflex is really key in these little kids because they don't fixate. You can't get them to look at something specific. Um, but looking at that corneal light reflex, and I have a little brochure that I show parents for st- business, and I open it up and I show them the picture of, like this little kid. And they're like, Yeah, yeah, that's what they look like. And I say, Yeah, yeah, that's not crossing. <laughs> they show me pictures on their cell phone. Here's another one. I say, yeah, that's not crossing either. So it's always looking at that corneal light reflex um, to see if it's centered in the pupils or not. Um, cover testing is our gold standard. but again, in low kids, it's kind of hard to get that at times. Um, but I think that referring these kids anyway is very appropriate because about eight, nine to ten percent go on to develop true business. Um if there's any family history, then especially I follow them closely. So pretty much every kid that I see that has pseudo business, um I end up having them come back in six months just for a, com- a confirmatory exam, and um let the parents know that you know it's possible that it may develop. Please let me know you know if you are not if it's not develop- not resolving. So, um, yeah, not a, a silly reason to refer a kid because it can be tricky to tell sometimes. So I'll just go over kind of the more common type sister business. Um, congenital isotropia, present from early on within six months of age. Not always that one from birth, because remember that's normal in the first couple months, but by six months of age, um, a more continuous or constant crossing. Um, they get cross fixation. So it may not be that they're fixing with one eye and one eye crossing. Their eyes will be like this almost continuously. and that's protective for them because they're using both eyes, they're less likely to develop amblyopia, even though they have this huge crossing, they're less likely to develop amblyopia than other forms of acquired esotropia, but they have no potential really for binocular vision if they're not um, corrected early on. A little controversial, some people will correct them as early as six months um, if they're able to get good measurements. Others, um, most studies say that if you do it within 18 to 24 months, then you're still good and I think that kind of delays the risks of anesthesia as well. So um, I, I like to wait a little bit until I know I'm getting reliable numbers. Um, You can do surgery early on, but it's really hard to get a very specific number. Um, It's frequently part of a congenital esotropia complex, so it's not just the crossing, but they can have inferior oblique overaction, which means you look off to the side and one eye pops way up. The inferior oblique works in adduction, and the eye tends to go up. So um, about 50 percent have that. 50 percent have a vertical, what's called a dissociated vertical deviation or a DVD, where an eye wants to wander up and then pops back down. So it's dissociated because the eyes aren't working in concert like you expect them to, it's one eye at a time. Um, so, the reason that's important is because they may have, you know, esotropia early on, you correct their esotropia and then they develop these other components of the congenital esotropia complex which may not happen until, you know, one, two, three years of age. Um, so they need to realize that this is not just a, a one-time fix Straighten their eyes so they may develop other issues later on. <clears throat> Um, accommodative esotropia is one of the more common forms that I see um, and is probably one that you see in clinic a lot as well. Um, onset around two to three years of age, sometimes can be kind of a sudden onset and um, is almost always seems to be some inciting event. Was, he fell and hit his head, he had a cold. And I say, well, when did the kid ever fall, not fall and hit their head? And when did they ever not have a cold? So it's easy to have like a, a specific thing that they think it's related to. Um, but I, f- I think of it as a kiddo just finally kind of gave up. They've been trying to control it and then finally as they're working, doing more near work, it just kind of overcame and it happened suddenly that the eye crossed in. Um, it can be intermittent initially and then becomes constant. Um, it's frequently associated with amblyopia versus congenital esotropia which is not um, this form. Um, we worry about their um, potential to develop amblyopia. It may be partially accommodative which means that part of it responds to glasses and part of it doesn't. So um, again, I have lots of discussions about surgery is one component of our treatment but they may continue to need glasses. Um, The reason you don't do surgery for the full part that's corrected by glasses is because that's a changing um, entity throughout childhood and it may go away on its own. So if you do surgery for the eyes crossing early on without the glasses, long term their eyes are going to go way out and um, that usually convinces the parents. Because I feel like I talk parents more out of surgery than into surgery for these kind of things. They just want it fixed. Take the glasses off, the eye's crossing in. But if it's glasses on, they're beautifully straight, and I say, yeah, that's a great outcome. I'm um, sorry that they need glasses, but um, if you don't want their eyes going out like this when they're, you know, 20 years old, then let's just continue with the glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, some um, we use bifocals in, and those are the ones who have either no crossing or a small amount of crossing at distance and at near, their eye pops way in. And they just have too much convergence. We all converge a little bit when we look up close. That's why our eyes cross when we look at our noses. Um, but some just have this overabundance of too much convergence to accommodation. And that's called accommodative convergence to accommodation ratio, or ACA ratio. So that's why some kids are in bifocals. And they typically, that pattern collapses throughout young childhood. So um, they can get, usually get out of the bifocals when they're about age 10 or so. So here's one where there's crossing glasses on, eyes are perfectly straight, and that's kind of our dream accommodative patient. Not oh, okay. all of them respond so beautifully. Um, if they have stereopsis, then exactly. shoot, they have that lock-in <laughs> mechanism again. If they don't, then the eye kind of straightens, but then other times it crosses. Lots of other forms of esotropia. One of my favorite is Dwayne syndrome, um, which is a problem with the development of the sixth nerve nucleus. And uh, so it's kind of like a 6 nerve palsy, except that they, um, it's more of a complex of problems. They can run a huge spectrum from the eye doesn't abduct completely um, to lid fissure changes because it's called Duane's Retraction Syndrome. When the eye tries to go in one direction, it's misfiring on both the medial and the lateral rectus, so the eye kind of gets pulled back in the orbit. So they kind of get what looks like ptosis, but it's actually retraction of that eye getting pulled back. Um, so this is a kid in the middle who's got a crossing. Um, and then on right gaze, he's got lid fissure narrowing um, as well as an upshoot and then there's no abduction of that left eye at all. Um, it's kind of d- important to determine that as Dwayne syndrome versus six nerve palsy early on because a six nerve palsy is not uh, something is not normal, I mean neither is normal but six nerve palsy needs to be probably your neural image versus a Dwayne syndrome has clear lid um, fissure changes and there's no need to neural image and just tell them it's a static condition, it's going to last forever and you may or may not need to do surgery. Um, so there's pseudo-exotropia as well as esotropia, most commonly due to something called a positive angle kappa, so a lot of these kids who have ROP early on, um, it changes the anatomy in the back of their eyes, so the macula is dragged temporally, and so to, for them to fix the central part of their macula, they have to put the eye out, so you look at them, light reflex, they look exotropic, but you do that cover-uncover, and they don't budge, because they're actually aligning the same areas of their retina, it's just that their macula's moved over. Um, which can be a difficult thing if it really is um, cosmetically an issue with the eye looking like it's way out, but they have good vision in each eye, you straighten it to make it look better and um, you give them double vision because um, now their brain's telling them that their eyes are crossed. Um, and so, uh, Intermittent exotropia is very common as well, this is more of a striking presentation of a, a B pattern where in straight ahead gaze, it's, um, the eyes are straight going up, the eyes are going out, typically onset before age five. Um, variable control, and that's what we're watching. It's not so much does it happen, but how much control do they have over it. If every time they look at something, the eye comes in. That's great as far as their long-term visual development. Um, And I'm usually trying to defer surgery because you get better outcomes and you can wait a little bit longer. But if it's becoming constant where you're worried about their visual development, um, then we end up doing surgery sooner rather than later. The problem with these is that it does tend to want to recur, and so um, if, if you're not doing, you really have to be aggressive about your surgical members, um, or else they do tend to want to recur. But you don't want to overcorrect them either, because this is not as amblyogenic as, say, esotropia, um, and so they can have a long time of the eye wandering out, and the vision can remain great, and they can have good stereo. Um, So if I skip a little bit here other than just congenital exotropia is a constant versus that intermittent large angle from about six months of age and they're highly associated with neurologic conditions. So a child who's six months old whose eyes going out all the time um, is somebody who I'd worry about actually um, more than a two-year-old whose eyes going out every now and then uh, because over the 50% are associated with some underlying neurologic condition. So if there's a true congenital exotropia, um, I usually end up scanning them um, just on the case that, you know, and it's not specific, hydrocephalus, again, um, um, a lot of different structural abnormalities in the brain can cause congenital exotropia. Oh, and they have a very poor prognosis for binocular development. And I would argue to say that it's probably that they never were hardwired in the first place, and that's what caused their eye to go out. So early surgery can try to develop um, fusion, but it rarely results in, um, in true fusion. So how do we do texture business that corneal light reflex, as I said is useful in all ages cover-uncover testing um, If you can get them to fixate my favorite trick is putting a sticker on my nose um, Because you know they're gonna look at it and as you know with pediatrics the more of a fool you make of yourself The better exam you get sometimes so it's <laughs> worth doing whatever you can to um, get them to look at you and it's Be silly you know when you're trying to get them to accommodate and actually look at your nose So I have that also frees up a hands too to do that cover-uncover hold their head at the same time They have strong necks, and so they're always going to go into a (laughs) position that makes them more comfortable. Hold their head, you know, put the sticker, cover on cover, um, one eye to the other, and you can see that refixation. So usually, I can get a cover on cover test in, you know, a one-year-old, even um, sometimes even younger, um, as long as you can get their attention. Harder to get their distance attention, but their near one you can usually get. So let me talk a little bit more about. um, So the Corneal light reflex, you, if you can have that sticker on your nose, light right towards your face and kind of shine it right at them, that's how you get that best look at that corneal light reflex. So normal is a tiny bit medially displaced, so you see the normal picture there that the, the not maybe perfectly centered, a tiny bit medially displaced on both eyes versus esotropia, the eyes going in, so the reflex is happening more laterally, exotropia, the reflex is happening more medially. Um, other signs of eye problems or eye misalignment, they may be hiding it um, because they want to put their eyes into a good um, binocular area. And so a head tilt is actually a, a good thing in that they want to, it shows me that they want to use their eyes. If they're giving up on their head tilt, it means that they're kind of starting to give up on their binocularity or a vision in one eye. Um, it may indicate strabismus or high uh, refractive error um, and tends to show up later um, than, um, than other forms of um, strabismus um, because they hide it for so long. Um, and you also need to consider obviously non ocular causes, but I think a good eye exam at any kid who has an unexplained head tilt um, is a good idea because you may not see an obvious misalignment um, until they're older. Um, so here's a kid who, from very young, had a um, head tilt, and then um, if you crank him in the other direction, um, I don't know if you can appreciate that that um, right eye is a little bit higher um, than the left. Right there. Um, here's a little girl, head tilt, kind of looking at Joe um, from the side and glasses. Her head straightens up um, good because there's just a refractive error issue. Um, little, uh, I can't tell you how many parents like, oh, we just thought they were being coy or cute their whole life. And they go back and look at every single family the picture They the kid going <laughs> And um, I said, well, that might be part of the case, but it may be that they have um, a fourth nerve palsy. This is, um, you can see the right eye going way up, again an adduction, that's an inferior oblique overaction. Um, which can frequently be associated with superior oblique underaction or can just be primary overaction of the inferior oblique. So they're avoiding that gaze, which is a good thing, again, but you don't want them living like this because it can really cause long term neck problems. Um, and then here's another little with the head t- turn, classic for Duane syndrome, um, that the eyes are nice and straight, they want to use their eyes together. Just very strong hands because they will just, like a spring, pop right back. So I put both hands on their head. Try to get their attention with my Tom and Jerry video and given over here and you can see that she has um, limited ab- abduction with the left eye and esotropia in primary position. Um, let me go ahead a little bit, so um, red reflex evaluation can also be helpful So, just photograph seeing that red reflex. If it's an asymmetric red reflex um, can indicate an opacity, so like a cataract or something, but find um, more frequently is that it's asymmetry in how the eyes lined up. So, asymmetry in the refractive error, you're getting one eye a little bit longer than the other, so you can get a little bit different reflex um, versus an eye that's crossing. It's hitting a different area of the retina, so the eyes shortened or lengthened based on that um, misalignment. So, here's a beautiful red reflex in both eyes. Um, Photoshop and stuff has kind of ruined our chances of looking at this sometimes. They go back and you know, none of the pictures have a red reflex because they've intentionally gotten rid of it. Um, or if it looked funny, they want to get rid of it, it was in one eye. Well, that's actually, actually pretty important. Um, so Bruckner test is where you're using a light um, from the direct ophthalmoscope um, shining with both eyes. So you have to kind of stand back a little bit for it to shine with both eyes and you can see here that one has a bright red reflex, the other one has a dollar and it's actually the turning eye that frequently has the brighter reflex rather than the abnormal eye. And it's quick, um, cheap, easy. Um, versus photo screening um, which is um, available um, they're spending anywhere from like five thousand dollar instrument to twenty thirty thousand dollar instruments to help screen for um, these early refractive errors and strabismus and um, they are of variable um, sensitivities and um, specificities and I don't think anything that really rivals just a good clinical <coughs> exam to tell you the truth. Um, they produce an image of that red reflex and it can qualify quantify how much um, and what that might mean. So here's an example of one called visit screen and um, there's a normal bright red reflex, high, high hyperopia may give you a, a, a displaced reflex, high myopia displaced and um can be subtle so I, I think that um, it, it's hard to, for computer programs to kind of see those subtleties. So some pros are that it's objective um, and maybe easier to administer than just looking at the kid yourself, Um, can be administered on really young kids. Um, But again, the sensitivity specificity may not be adequate and so they tend to really over-refer patients, I think, um, and while also missing some of the important ones. Um, And they're better detecting refractive error than actual strabismus. Uh, So some non-surgical treatments for strabismus. Um, includes um, eye exercises in a very limited sense. Um, there are a lot of people asking about eye exercises, can I, is there anything I can do to strengthen the muscle? But remember, this isn't a muscle problem per se, it's more of a um, sensory issue than it is a, a muscular issue. Um, but the one case that we know that the eye exercises can be helpful is if there's a convergence, so converge bringing the eyes together, insufficiency. Where their eyes are straight at distance, they try to read and the eyes diverge out. Um, can be very bothersome with reading. Um, not a lot of great surgical options because you have a different deviation distance and near, and you may end up overcorrecting them at distance to try to get that near angle. Um, but convergence exercises, what we call kind of pencil push-ups, um, are an active method. Um, so they need to be an older kid who can actually comply with it of looking at something, being aware of where their eyes breaking, and then kind of pushing and pushing. Um, and it gives them a tool to try to increase that near angle, and which may actually go away over time. So if you can give them a better tool early on, they may feel, maintain good alignment long term. Um, otherwise, like I said, there's there not a lot of effective um, methods with eye exercises or vision therapy. Um, a lot of patients ask about vision therapy, they come in and they spend thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 on vision therapy recommended and there's no evidence to back it up, unfortunately. Um, then um, the, what I see on the other side is the problems with vision therapy as far as they've done anti-suppression, so they're trying to teach the brain not to suppress one eye. Well, that's great, except that suppression is an adaptive mechanism to try to avoid double vision. And so they come to you later in life with their eyes crossing or going out. And now they can't suppress an image. So when you try to straighten their eyes, they get intractable double vision. And they depend on that misalignment to avoid um, double vision. Um, And so in some cases, it can be um, detrimental as well as just monetarily. It's extremely expensive and not covered by insurance because it's not backed up by any evidence. Um, with a Glasses can be helpful for accommodative um for kids who have a um, exotropia or the convergence insuffici- insufficiency types. You can actually give them more minus or myopic correction than they need. It induces convergence so their eyes come together. Um, usually it's more of a short-term fix, um, but for some kids it works quite well. Um, and then all forms of strabismus are better with their best corrected vision. So if they have poor vision and when I do to amblyopia say, um, I, it's hard to um, push surgery early on because you may not be seeing their true deviation because they're kind of ignoring that eye and it doesn't have a good endpoint. You improve their vision and they either have better control or you're at least able to get better measurements to proceed with surgery. So indications for strabismus surgery are when it's constant, um, congenital forms, you can tell early on that it's going to be something that needs to be corrected. If it's acquired later but um, it's not controlled with glasses, before they lose that stereo um, stereopsis, it's, um, try to do surgery as soon as possible. Um, an intermittent deviation, if it is poorly controlled, if you're documenting that each time they have less stereopsis, so we can check those little circles and they got nine the first time, five the second time, now they will get the, the um, fly. Um, they're losing their stereopsis slowly, so you need to get um, do surgery earlier rather than later. Um, and kids rarely have double vision. That really only happens after they've already had their binocular system developed. So, um, usually, a very astute six or seven year old um, can describe double vision, um, but then they start to suppress pretty quickly. So, um, they may have double vision for a short time and then it typically goes away with kids versus adults who cannot get rid of that second image and then continuously have double vision. Um, Sometimes we'll put them in prisms, which is like the, if you've seen me in my clinic, I have a little um, prism that we measure strabismus with. With adults, we'll put them in prisms long term to help with their double vision. With kids, we typically use it more just for uh, um, diagnostic purposes, trying to find their ultimate angle deviation that you want to do surgery for. Um, Alternatives to surgery um, are um, Botox injections. The first place of um, Botox injections was actually described in eye muscles. Um, It's injected into one or more eye muscles to paralyze and um, kind of give the um, opposing muscle a chance to um, strengthen. Um, It is transient, but there are some cases where it lasts longer. So in Europe, they actually do these over and over again. And there was a guy in England who was doing 70 Botox injections in some patients. Every three months, they came in for their low injection, their eyes straightened out, and then they had to come back in. In the U.S. we use it a little bit more judiciously and for me, I find that it's most helpful for um, kind of um, complicated cases if there's um, clear restriction um, where you're trying to loosen a muscle to allow the outside muscle to um, strengthen a little bit. Um, And so I think it has its purpose but it's maybe not a catch all for everybody even though it sounds really great just to be able to do a quick five minute procedure rather than a full surgery. Um, Kids who have developmental delay may be a good candidate for this, or if you're getting a hard time getting measurements, you know you want their eyes straight, but you're really having a hard time fine-tuning exactly how much. Um, This could be a five-minute anesthetic where you do an injection, um, their eyes straighten out, and um, then you can get a better idea later on if you can do surgery to address it. Um, So Botox, as you know, has um, a lot of other implications, Um, use it for spastic um, um, parrises, blepharospasm in the face, you see a lot um, for lid um, spasms, um, vocal cord issues, cosmetic Some people really benefit from it. (laughs) Um, So it's basically just done um, in an adult patient. We do it while they're awake in the clinic, but for kids obviously under anesthesia, and you just move the eye over, you numb it up, and you inject it two and a half centimeters back. So you really want to get back into the eye muscle belly. um, And um, so if you know the anatomy, then you can just follow right along that muscle um, and inject. Um, um, It takes a few days to kick in, so initially there's not much to look at, other than a little subconscious hemorrhage, um, within a couple days it starts to go out and then it keeps going out and then a week or two later it's out like this and their lids totic and the parents are calling freaking out um, and you just reassure, reassure that within another week or two it tends to come in and um, if they have stereopsis then they find that sweet spot and kind of walk in again. Um, and um, for those who don't, I think it's less effective um, more long term. So it may be an alternative to surgery in some patients. Um, favorable factors are smaller angles, crossing versus um, Wandering or exotropia. Entosis um, is actually very common, um, so you have to tell the parents that this may happen, which, if you can imagine, in kids who have amblyopia, that might actually be beneficial because then you're creating occlusion as well. Um, from the surgery standpoint, um, as I said, um, sooner rather than later to help keep their eyes straight to maintain that good binocularity. Um, so, we're trying to preserve depth perception, improve their stable long term alignment by doing surgery earlier, avoiding strabismic amblyopia, and those self esteem issues as well. Um, so kind of So it's an outpatient surgery, it takes about an hour to an hour and a half for two muscles. Um, usually for an eye crossing, I'll do one muscle on each eye unless they have, um, you know, some anatomic problem with one eye or um, there's any concern of doing surgery on both eyes. Um, and so you can either recess it, which means moving it back, or tighten it up, or recessing um, part of the muscle, or kind of plicating it or folding it over on itself. Um, so here it's um, the muscles as I always describe to patients because they want to know, did you take the eye out? How do you get to the muscles? They're not that far back, they're five millimeters back from the limbus or the colored edge of the eye, um, but they're covered by the conjunctiva. So you have to open up the conjunctiva, you make a small hole in the fornix, which is down in the corner here, and you fold it up and over, you find the muscle, clean off of its attachments, put it on a little hook, um, and then here you can see that it's getting on a suture, and then you resect it. So it's not done by laser, there's no magical anything, it's just very mechanical. If you enjoy quilting and stuff, cut it, move it, resew it. Um, it's very satisfying, fun kind of surgery to do. Um, and then you either hang it back so that it or else you reattach it to the sclera more posteriorly. The amount that we move it is based on the measurements that we get in clinic with the prisms. So um, 20 prism diopters, 30 prism diopters. Um, and you look at tables of thousands of kids you've had them before and say that that equals a 5.5 millimeter recession. So you're trying to get to the half a millimeter. Sometimes I'll say I did a 4.25 millimeter recession. I don't know if I'm that good, but um, it's nice to try to get as close as possible. Um, Let's see, it's, um, the kids do quite well, adults complain for two weeks, take weeks off from work, eyes are red, itchy, they hurt. Um, kids, the next day, they're back to themselves. It's really dramatic. <laughs> I call the parents the next day and they're worried about trying to hold them down. And Luckily, there's not a lot of um, limitations to their activities afterwards. They can't swim for a couple weeks because I don't like the dirty kind of Pseudomonas stuff in the eye. But um, other than that, running around is just fine. Um, there's no sutures to remove, they're all dissolvable. Um, the eyes are red, which is the most common complaint that I get, they call them, say, their eyes are red. Say, well, they had surgery on their eyes, so um, it's amazing that that's a shock to some parents. Um, so pain, bleeding, redness um, can all occur. Um, some young kids, excuse me, rarely have um, discomfort, so, but now I'm starting to inject a little bit of lidocaine at the end of the case. That seems to make them wake up a little bit more comfortable too. Um, The biggest complication is just the potential need for further surgery. About 25% of kids go on to develop either some other form of eye misalignment or um, have a recurrence or a long-term overcorrection. And then the big scary thing that parents always want to know is how much is, you know, what are the risks to their vision itself. It's very rare. The most common cause is endophthalmitis or an infection that then seeps into the eye. Sorry. Um, it's less than one in ten thousand um, cases. Anesthesia complications also quite rare, but I do like to kind of wait until um, maybe eighteen months if I can for those early forms. So we're always looking for ways to improve the accuracy. Um, I've had patients in there um, who are 65 years old and they had surgery when they were, you know, 10, and they tell me, "Oh, well, I'm sure it's, it's very different now from when." The, it's really not that different. (laughs) I have a patient who had surgery 40 years ago in Sweden, and they have excellent medical records. So she was able to get her medical records and send them to me. And she's like, I don't even understand this. Well, she translated it for me, and it was almost my exact (laughs) verbatim surgical report that I do right now. So there's not a lot of magic through changes, nuances to, you know, different types of suture material and um, the approach, you do a fornix incision instead of a full limbo incision, um, but moving the muscle mechanically backwards, tightening it up, um, are the same approach as it's been for a long, long time. So we're trying to find, how can we improve that? <laughs> and um, one thing that we do know is that we can use an adjustable suture. Um, and so for adults, I use an adjustable suture where you put it on and it'll uh, show a picture in a second, but you put it on a little bit of a noose knot, and then um, you put it where you think you want it to go, and they wake up from anesthesia, you do their a, a cover-on-cover test, and if there's a surprise under or over correction, you can loosen or tighten that muscle a little bit uh, by a couple millimeters if they're awake. Um, I do the adjustable technique in some kids who have either complex forms of strabismus, um, or some reason that I'm um, not sure of the outcome. For a run-of-the-mill esotropia, the tables are very good, and I think there's a sensory component, so that immediate um, um, re- result is not really what I'm thinking about long term, um, but for the ones where I really want to see um, right away if there's been a surprise outcome, we use this adjustable technique. So for kids, you put them on the slip knot, you tape it down to the side of their nose. They wake up from anesthesia, they're cranky as all get out. You're trying to get an exam. Finally, you get an exam, and if they don't need adjusted, you don't need to do anything. If they do need adjusted, then you use propofol sedation and they can do it right there at the bedside again. Um, so here it is. The muscle's been isolated on the suture. You cut it off from the globe. Put a little of that slip knot, sliding noose um, around that pole suture. Um, put it where you think it needs to go, five millimeters and then allow it to hang back, um, confirm it with your calipers. Um, and then I put in a um, for adults, especially and for some kids, I'll put in a um, traction suture which is just like a, a little episcleral bite, and that way you can maneuver their eye um, without them kind of helping out. Um, most patients tolerate it very well. I'd say the Ones that don't are 18 to 30-year-old men are the hardest. <laughs> 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 um, they usually get broken. Um, so um, here it is in like a real life. You getting the muscles hanging back. It takes about a week to two weeks for that muscle to read to the globe. So in theory, I could actually adjust it a, a couple days later. It starts to form those connections, so it's definitely more uncomfortable for the patient. Um, some people even delay that adjustment a couple days um, uniformly, but I find that it's uncomfortable enough that I'd rather do it within the first couple of hours. Um, so, the, the sutures are dissolvable, so they're just intended to let the muscle, you know, adhere to the globe somewhere um, and um, then they go away. You cover up the knots, you take them to the side of the face, um, and then you do the adjustment in the attack you. Um, so, again, I use it in kiddos um, on occasion, here's some old photos, um, trying to do that adjustment assessment and it um, can be difficult at times if they're not in the mood. Um, and, and yeah, these kids can wake up pretty cranky sometimes. Um, so here they're doing the adjustment and it's just a matter of someone holding the lids open and these sliding that noose a little bit. It takes a few minutes to do. And they can tighten it. Um, so in summary, um, strabismus may be a sign of underlying disease, so always have a high index of suspicion. Although it's not common that it's um, due to a brain tumor or um, severe vision loss due to an intraocular issue, um, but it's not zero. So um, always have this high index of suspicion: is this just a run-of-the-mill strabismus, or is there something more going on? Um, but an early full eye exam is important. And so for those kids who are crossing, you know, three, four, five months of age, um, that's not normal. And so they've already reached that developmental period where they should have straight eyes. And so I wouldn't just say, well, you may grow out of it. Um, it really, a full eye exam is important to make sure that there's not an other etiology and to kind of see if, you know, what are the chances of their binocular development. Um, strabismus may cause vision loss. The most common form of vision loss in the world is amphiopia. Um, greatest risk, remember, with esotropia versus exotropia, where we can kind of sit on them a little bit longer. Um, and with constant deviations. Um, So the primary care doctor must detect and suspect it in order to refer. So a high level of suspicion for family members or for any of those kids in the high risk categories. And um, there's a variety of detection strategies um, and there's no magic way. It's just a matter of trying to get the exam and um, refer if there's any concerns. So a special thank you. Dr. David Hunter was um, my mentor in Boston. Um, He's um, and a lot of these photos, the older ones are from him. And um, there's a lot of references if you want.
0: In that early period before the two months, you said, is uh, very common to have that. But that also sounds like the sensitive period of when their
1: vision is developing. So, would you just be looking for constant interning? Exactly, yeah. That's a lot of kids. That would be exactly, important. yeah. So, if it's intermittent and there's times, I mean, all kids hold their hands up like this and then their eyes pop way in. Um, and But it's not a constant deviation Then yeah, you just wait. Uh,
0: two questions uh, somewhat related. The uh, first one is, Uh, About what percentage of a general population of children uh, would you think would uh, deserve referral? I always felt that we under-referred rather than over-referred, but what number out of a hundred?
1: Of otherwise healthy kids? Of of little
0: kids, yeah, little kids that- I would say an order
1: of 5% or so. I mean, it's hard to put a number on it, I guess, but it's it's common enough that- I, th- I think on, on average, it's about three to five percent of kids have some form of strabismus or amblyopia.
0: And related to that, uh, is there a particularly an animal or primate model of strabismus? Because one would think that something that's so prevalent would evolutionarily uh, not work well in the wild. Mm-hmm. And why is it persistent now? What's its association with something that would allow it to persist?
1: Um, I don't know. um, It it can be an adaptive mechanism um, from a sensory standpoint, um, if there's not the right input from a set, so decreased vision in one eye, um, the eye can wander in, um, but I I don't know if there is any benefit to strabismus, Um, I think it's it's, it's pathological. How about
0: an animal model?
1: Um, there are very few animals that have um, strabismus, they use monkeys, macaque monkeys um, regularly but they don't, I don't think they have lo- levels of strabismus that, um, that humans do and very few other animals actually use their binocular vision. Um,
0: Thank you, Erin. That was a great talk and I'm a little stressed now because I have to go detect all of this and refer it to you. Um, in my, um, Teaching for residents, I've always said, if the parents have a concern, just refer. Because I feel like they'll say something to me, like, oh, they have a lazy eye or their eye crosses. And I never see it in clinic. And the red reflex looks fine.
1: So does that teaching still hold for you, that you just rather see them? Or um, yeah, I, I think so if they have serious concerns, then I always trust um, their intuition and it's I mean, I've been fooled where they come in, their eyes are nice and straight and our exam is normal and they swear that yes, they're crossing and then they have them come back their six-month visit and you know, they're crossing. So was it intermittent early on that we just didn't see it in our clinic setting? It certainly wasn't in the realm of amb- being amblyogenic because it was infrequent. But um, yeah, I would take um, their concerns seriously because um, I'd rather talk them out of it than um, vice versa. Is it reasonable to follow, for us to just follow? So if they have something that we see absolutely nothing in clinic, we see them again, we see absolutely nothing. So if it's that intermittent, mm-hmm. is it something that's, that's Then certainly you could follow because again, if, it, <coughs> that's if they been, are crossing. Like my, my approach has been. Yeah. Um, not the, sort of the opposite of what Kathy's is. If the parents are concerned, I'll see them back mm-hmm. um, and try to have them you know, take a picture of things or whatnot. But just, I feel like I would be referring, mm-hmm. I don't know, 10% of the kids that I see right. to you. And I don't think that that's. Right, it seems like a lot to me. It really just depends on your comfort level, I guess, with your exam. You know, if it's an unruly kid, it's all over the place, and um, it's, you know, we may be, you may be missing something. Yeah, but I feel like but I can't, can't get an exam. Yeah, I think but if you feel like you're getting a regional exam, then it's not happening frequently enough for for it to become a vision issue, um, then yeah, I think it's fine to sit on it. Um. Um, I know a lot of families ask me about like that their optometrist will do a screening for free for up to, I think it's like up to two years or something, I'm just wondering what they're doing, like if you know what they're doing in those, is it just the drum thing that they're doing or is Um, it is it the thing that they, you said that doesn't have a good sensitivity. Um, it, it's hard, I don't know. They have a lot of different methods. Um, there is a little controversy between kind of optometry and ophthalmology and the recommendations for screening. So, optometry um, societies really push for early screening, um, but we find that that's not actually necessary. It's not cost effective. Um, full dilated exams for every kid um, is certainly not necessary. Um, so, but I, I get all different kinds of referrals in from optometrists. They never dilated them. I mean, if there's a serious concern and there was not a dilated exam done, then that's not an appropriate screening, um, but so I'm not really sure what they're doing if they're able to get vision or if they have a photo screener, music um, ex- things are expensive obviously um, and they're not perfect but they can give a quick you know read and at least make people feel a bit better that oh they have a normal screen early on, um, so I'm not sure what they're doing to be honest. Mm-hmm. Thank you
0: so much.